Mark Kletch of George Washington University, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Nick Danforth about his new book, The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire. We also talk to Lucy Abbott and Vincent Keating about their new article, Entrusted Norms, Security, Trust, and Betrayal in the Gulf Cooperation Council Crisis. And then to catch up on that crisis, we talk to Christian Ulrichsen about the GCC, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and the international relations of the Gulf. Thanks for listening. This is the Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Nicholas Danforth. He's a senior visiting fellow at the Hellenic Institute for European and Foreign Policy, author of the brand new book, The Remaking of Republican Turkey, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. So I guess to start, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the book? Uh, what do you think the major contribution is? You know, what did you set out to do? You know, this is something I wish I thought a little bit more about before I finished the book. But in retrospect, I think I would say you know, there are three things I'm trying to do here. Uh, I tried to make an argument about what the culture and politics of 1950s Turkey was like, uh, give a sense of a crucial transformational moment in uh, the history of this country when you know Turkey went from being a one-party authoritarian regime to being a multi-party democracy. And when Turkey went from following a independent neutralist foreign policy uh, to being the loyal NATO ally that we think of it, well, that we thought of it as until maybe the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a big part of it. And it's also in doing this inevitably, trying to engage with some debates about how the last century of Turkish history gets framed. Uh, since uh, Erdogan came to power, there's been a lot of historiography about modern Turkey that's been written as if, all Turkish as if all Turkish politics is a referendum on Erdogan versus Ataturk, uh, secularism versus Islamism, East versus West. Uh, a lot of these cliches, a lot of these cliched binaries that get read back onto the last hundred years of Turkish history. And the point I'm trying to make is that when you look at the 1950s, you can't fit them into, you can't fit them into this narrative. It wasn't like, you know, the government that came to power in 1950s was kind of a proto-Erdogan um, it wasn't like, it wasn't like everything that happened in the country's history can be read on this Islamist secular Ataturk anti Ataturk binary. Um, there was something really strange and unique going on back then. And this builds into the final thing that I'm trying to do, which is make a big argument about the relationship between politics, uh, and history and our own, you know, role as historians and engaging with politics as we write history. Uh, you've seen a lot of scholarship in the last 10 or 20 years in the field of Middle Eastern studies uh, that's been very critical you know, in the Turkish studies field of uh, Kemalism, of the uh, high modernism, of the heavy-handed secularism, of the hyper-Westernization that accompanied the Kemalist ideological program. Uh, and specifically a lot of scholarship now pointing out how those ideas about secularism, about modernization, which seemed liberatory at the time, we're actually very complicit in uh, some very brutal, some very authoritarian uh, governance over the last hundred years. Uh, this has been an enormously important observation. Uh, the deep irony, which you know more than anything I think is the driving force behind this book, is that in the last 20 years, as people were articulating that critique, as they were pointing out some very real flaws in 
you know, the Kamalist regime and the modernist, secularist, pro-Western ideology that often seem to buttress it, uh, that very, those very scholarly critiques were co-opted by uh, Erdogan and the Erdogan regime in their own efforts to consolidate a very brutal and dictatorial government, uh, which remains, which continues to be consolidated in Turkey today. Uh, and so I think it's important that we look at the way the ideas of our predecessors were misused, but I think it's also important that we uh, make an effort to, you know, to give them a little more credit, right. look at what they were trying to do, look at how their ideas might have been misused uh, by authoritarians at the time in order to be more cautious of how some of our ideas can be co-opted and misused uh, as we work on them today. So it's really interesting. So maybe just very quickly, just give us a sense of the scope and the sweep of the book, like the, the, the major things that you talk about. There are a lot of them. Um, it got, someone said that it took a little bit too much of a grab bag approach to history, but I, I certainly thought that was the most fun way to write it. And I hope that comes through in the book. Well, I ended each, each chapter is, uh, is just incredibly fun to read, I have to say. Thank you. No, I mean, that's what, you know, there were so many topics um, ranging from the politics of Ottoman history in the 1950s to the politics of religious revival mm -hmm. in the 1950s, um, art, popular history magazines, uh, U.S. views of Turkish democracy, where I think there'd been a tendency of scholars to read things back into uh into a series of binaries, into a series of kind of your Kamalist Westernization versus Erdogan's, you know, Islamist oriented pro-Middle Eastern kind of anti-Kamalism. Uh, and I tried to go through and unpack the way people were talking about all of these issues in the 1950s uh, and show, I, mean, I guess I should clarify, it's not that, you know, scholars themselves when they're writing about Turkish politics will never admit that they're engaging in binaries, but they always project those binaries onto uh, their predecessors. They always try to cast previous generations of politicians and scholars uh, as believers in this binary. So, you know, there's this narrative, for example, when it comes to the politics of Ottoman, Ottoman history, uh, that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in creating modern Turkey uh, firmly rejected the Ottoman past in favor of a brand new a modern nation that he was creating, uh, a Western-looking nation, and a nation that traced its uh, historical origins back to the Central Asian Turkic peoples. Uh, and the contrast to this is always supposedly uh, Erdogan, who has now re-embraced the Ottoman past that Ataturk and his comrades forgot, uh, and in doing this has reconnected with Turkey's past, has reconnected with the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, of course, historians now would say, well, maybe both of those are sort of oversimplified approaches and the real way to do it would be something more nuanced and sophisticated. The point I try to make is that actually all these people, you know, including the Kamalists themselves, were engaged in a much more sophisticated project. Uh, Erdogan, like modern historians, accuses them of rejecting the Ottoman past. But when you look at the way they engaged with the Ottoman past, it was actually much more complicated. Uh, they co-opted the parts of it that they liked, they rejected certain parts that didn't fit with their agenda. Uh, they renamed certain parts of it so they didn't look as Ottoman. Uh, but they engaged with it. You know, and part of the way they engaged with it is simply by trying to highlight, you know, that, and by trying to argue, in some cases historically accurately, in some cases a, a fairly implausible and ridiculous way, that the Ottoman Empire, when it had been its, its most powerful, had in fact been its most Kamalist. 
Uh, they, they would argue, you know, again, somewhat impossibly that the Ottoman Empire in its golden age had been, had been secular, had been ethnically homogeneous and Turkish, uh, and that it was in fact when the empire lost those qualities, uh, when it became more religious, when it became more decentralized, when it became less Turkish, that it experienced decline. Um, you know, so I think when we lose sight of how people in the past have played with history, the games they played with history, uh, it's easy to lose sight of the way, you know, Erdogan wasn't simply in his embrace of the Ottoman Empire, wasn't simply reconnecting with a forgotten Ottoman past. He was engaged in his own political project. He was engaged in recreating a fantasy of a you know, pious, hyper-powerful, um, very Islamist Ottoman Empire, which also doesn't necessarily quite fit with the facts. And I think now we've realized that Erdogan's use of uh, the Ottoman past is a very politicized, very dubious, uh, problematic endeavor. But you'd be surprised going back 10 years, how many scholars really kind of bought into his project, really treated what he was doing with history as being more authentic than what a previous generation of Kamalists had done. Uh, and I think part of the reason they were able to fall into this belief is because they, you know, because they oversimplified uh, and caricaturized what the Kamalists themselves had been doing. Right. So, you know, one of the things which is really striking about the book, and you touched on it a minute ago, is the way that you really try and reconstruct uh, these debates on their own terms, uh, instead of projecting backwards, looking at what the intellectuals and, and politicians at the time were saying and how they were saying it and why they were saying it. And uh, it really is um, uh, very effective, I think, in terms of conveying the sophistication of those debates. And uh, when you were mentioning a moment ago, this thing about the binaries uh, for the scholars, uh, one thing which really struck me and, and stayed with me from, from your book was when you talked about how basically everybody within these debates was always, there was a consensus about overcoming binaries. Everybody wanted to right. overcome binaries all the time. Right. But then, as you say, the way that you overcome binaries is creative, contradictory, and malleable were the three words I had jotted down in my notes. Um, so talk, can you talk about that just a little bit about kind of how you see people, the people you're studying, the ways they engaged with this idea of binaries? Right, so one of the things that a lot of the scholarship um, over the last decade or two emphasized in its description of uh, the Kamalist westernizing and modernizing program was this idea of it being uh, an overzealous or a Jacobin project that was, you know, again, the words they use are telling hyper westernization, high modernism, right. uh, that it was this aggressive pursuit of uh, these ideals that came at the expense of what was seen as a kind of more organic or authentic uh, Turkish identity. Um, you know, which was for the people writing this wrapped up in, you know, having this connection to the Middle East, having this connection to Asia, having this Islamic uh, identity, traditional Islamic practice. Uh, this is also, of course, the scholars were writing this as a criticism auditor, but very much what uh, Erdogan and his political rhetoric played on that, you know, this, the Kamalists tried to make Turkey into a cheap imitation of Europe. Uh, and in doing so, they, you know, abandoned the core authentic identity of the country. Um, you know, and in contrast to this, a lot of the pro-Erdogan rhetoric from both academics and uh, Erdogan's people in the 2000s emphasized that, you know, what Erdogan was trying to do was create a more organic relationship between religion and modernity, 
between East and West, between Turkey's past and its present. But of course, when you look back at the 50s, this is also what everyone was saying they were doing back then. Um, whether they were people that we would now think of as Islamists or people we would now think of as diehard Kamalists, uh, they were very eager to insist that they were doing something very authentic, that they were trying to reconcile these binaries. Uh, no one in Turkish history, least of all Ataturk, ever said, you know, I'm abandoning our authentic identity in order to try to ape or imitate the West. Uh, everyone, whether, you know, we personally might think they were aping and imitating the West or not, was very uh, eager to contrast what they were doing with some parody of hyper-Westernization. You know, so Ataturk himself, and I try to do this in the book, goes through and points to a number of foils, points to people both in the late Ottoman era and in his own era uh, that he thinks are overly subservient to the West, are overly fixated with imitating the West. Um, people are frequently accused of dandyism, um, you know, this very superficial rep, uh, imitation of Western style that belies this kind of failure to understand real Western beliefs. Uh, and so the Kamala's project and a lot of its nationalism and a lot of its, you know, its own reform efforts we're dedicated to trying to reject this accusation of hyper-Westernization. Um, you know, and, and that lays the groundwork then for people in the 1950s uh, as they're, you know, say moving away from the uh, heavy-handed secularism of the Kamalist era to say, you know, we're actually not rejecting Ataturk's project, we're perfecting it. Hmm. You know, he didn't, his goal was never to have Turkey completely divorced from its Islamic roots. His goal was to have Turkey, um, you know, break with a overly Arab-influenced understanding of Islam, with a uh, version of Islam that was subservient to, you know, Middle Eastern cultures, and actually be able to identify uh, a natural, organic, modern form of Islam, which, you know, some, some Kamalists in the '50s said, you know, now having passed through this era of heavy-handed secularism, uh, broken with our ties. Uh, to the wrong kind of Islam, we are now in a position to perfect. Um, you know, and again, you can believe them or not, you can think that really is what Ataturk wanted or what it isn't wanted, but it's striking that a lot of people, both in Ataturk's own party, as well as foreign observers, people like Bernard Lewis, uh, you know, really saw some of the increased religiosity in Turkey in the 1950s, say, um, you know, as being not a rejection of Kamalism in favor of some kind of Islamist, Eastern-oriented new identity, but as the final step towards perfecting this, you know, authentic synthetic identity that they at the time claimed Ataturk himself had wanted. You know, maybe building off of that, uh, one of the, you know, there's so many things in the book that we could talk about, but uh, for, for me as a political science and international relations person, um, I was really interested by your discussion of the debates over joining NATO and uh, this kind of twin uh, debate that you describe about the, um, you know, the anti-imperialist thread, uh, along with urgently wanting to become part of the West, combined with like these very complicated feelings towards Arabs. Um, so can, can we just like talk about that, uh, that chapter for a little bit? Definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, and that's been one of the binaries that I think has been most pernicious in contemporary writing about Turkish foreign policy. Uh, that it's, you know, you not only have this, is Turkey, is Turkey turning east, is Turkey turning away from the west rhetoric, but you have this insistence on linking kind of the cultural pro-Western attitudes and the westernization of Ataturk with 
uh, this idea of what Turkey's geopolitical orientation should be, and the simple idea that you know Turkish people liked the West more than they liked the Arabs, so they wanted to be part of NATO, uh, and now they like the Arabs more than they like the Europeans, so they want to have good relations with the Middle East. And I think you know Turkish foreign politics in the 50s and Turkish foreign policy today makes a mockery of this. Um, and you see in the debates over joining NATO, you know, the full complexity of, of these emotions. Um, you know, it's worth keeping in mind, and it's easy to forget that political leaders who brought Turkey into NATO had, you know, personally fought against uh, France and England, both NATO members, in defense of the independence of countries like Syria and Iraq, which were subsequently colonized by uh, Britain and France. And so in both trying to navigate the relations with NATO and the relations with the Middle East, you had a complicated mix of admiration and hostility um, you know, towards the Europeans, as well as condescension and sympathy towards the Arabs. Um, and it comes out in the way, you know, and one of the most striking things that I enjoyed, you know, people always talk about how Turkey should be a bridge between East and West. And indeed, in the 1950s, this cliche was already there. And Americans and Turkish uh, diplomats always wanted to present Turkey as a possible bridge between East and West in order to improve, uh, you know, in order to play an intermediary role between the United States and the Middle Eastern countries that the United States was trying to bring together into an anti-communist alliance. Uh, and the problem is that these efforts successfully broke down because the United States and Turkey had very different ideas of what uh, Turkey's role as a bridge between East and West would be. Uh, and for the United States, what they really wanted Turkey to be was a country that was sympathetic enough to the Middle Easterners that it could convince the Middle Easterners of the necessity of going along with uh, basically what the British wanted, because everyone should realize that what the British wanted was ultimately what we had to do in order to prevent the communists from taking over. Uh, and the Turkish government was much more convinced that its role as a bridge between East and West was convincing the United States that actually if they wanted to succeed in bringing the Arabs and other Middle Eastern people into an anti-communist alliance, they had to get the British to tone down the imperialism a little bit. Uh, and so you see this play out um, you know, in 1953 in Iran, for example, uh, the United States thinks that it can get Turkey to convince Mossadegh to be a little more accommodating of the British. Uh, and Turkish politicians, really what they're trying to do is get the British to be a little more compromising. Uh, and both sides are saying, well, this, you know, this is ultimately what we need to do to defeat the Soviet Union. But at the end of the day, you know, because of their history, they both have different, I mean, the United States and Turkey have different understandings of what, you know, what a fair compromise would be. So let me uh, change gears a little bit. I want to go and talk about one of my favorite uh, uh, set pieces um, in the book, which is the, the 500 year anniversary. Oh, great. <laughs> Can you tell, just tell us the story a little bit and then explain how you analyze it and the significance of it. And so this, all, this stuff I was saying about the politics of Ottoman history earlier, I think really is crystallized in this right. humongous celebration that the Turkish government puts on in 1953 for the 500th anniversary of the, you know, depending on what you want to call it, Ottoman or Turkish conquest of Constantinople. 
Uh, and for historians looking back in the Erdogan era, they've often pointed to this, uh, this celebration coming just three years after Turkey has its new, its first free elections and a new more conservative uh, party takes over as you know, a shift from the anti-Ottoman politics of the Kemalist era to the pro-Ottoman politics that culminated in Erdogan today. And yet when you look at the actual celebration and the politics surrounding the celebration, uh, it's almost the opposite of that. The planning for this started uh, 10 years earlier under the you know, Kemal's successor, Ismet Inonu. Uh, and, they, you know, and then when these celebrations actually take place, they go on for 10 days uh, and the opposition, the Republican People's Party, uh, spends the entire time criticizing the supposedly more Islamist conservative Democrat party for not doing enough to honor Fatih's memory, Fatih Sultan Mehmet, the conqueror of Constantinople. You know, and they say, well, you know, if we get reelected uh, in the next election, we'll actually put on a celebration that's worthy of Fatih himself. And in spite of this, though, the celebrations that take place are actually very much trying to play up, again, accurately or not, the supposed secularism, um, liberalism, progressivism of Fatih Sultan Mehmet himself. Uh, they say he was the most Western-minded of Turkish sultans. They say that his very decision to conquer Istanbul was a move to turn Turkey's face to the West. Uh, they say that you know, Fatih Sultan Mehmet actually invented the idea of human rights 500 years before the United Nations did. Uh, they say that Turkish troops who are currently fighting under the United Nations umbrella in Korea are actually defending the values that uh, Fatih Sultan Mehmet first came up with. Um, you know, and again, some American observers looked at this a little skeptically with some amusement, but there was also a real willingness, you know, at the time in the early years of the alliance to buy into it. Um, you know, and then not to mention just the celebrations themselves were you know, for something that's now thought of, that Ottoman history is now thought of as an Islamist project, you know, the celebration, so many aspects of them were so excessively secular. Uh, you know, they came out with a new brand of uh, Fatih Sultan Mehmet cigarettes, of Fatih Sultan Mehmet uh, Raka. They, the Turks in New York apparently came up with a drink called Istanbul Magic to celebrate the commemoration, which was Raka, uh, lemon juice and creme de mint. Uh, it's disgusting. The, you know, they had garden parties, they had soirees, they had fashion shows supposedly inspired by Fatih's costumes. Uh, they had a soccer match. I think Besiktas defeated Fenerbahce in it. Um, you know, it wasn't in both the rhetoric and the actual performance of the event. You know, they said they wanted to be like Khans. It wasn't, they wanted to be like the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Um, you know, and so part of it was fascinating to me, both in, you know, looking at the rhetoric of these events and the kind of the stylistic, the presentation of these events was specifically this question of how a Middle Eastern country whose history has often been, has often been orientalized, has often been used to define that country as non-European, as backwards, as somehow different from the West. How a country like that, you know, in trying to become more Western, in joining, you know, NATO, the Western Alliance, uh, how it can try to redefine and package its history so that it can actually celebrate all the same, you know, the military victories, the beautiful buildings, all the same aspects of its historical culture that Western countries celebrate uh, without having its modernity called into question. Uh, and I think part of what's fun about these 1953 celebrations of the conquest of Constantinople is that they really show this effort uh, in practice. 
No, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, and, and maybe to take a slight left turn here um, about the, the book as a whole, um, you know, so one of the things which is really striking about the book is the diversity of sources that you bring as you as you explore these questions and, uh, and and draw out these vignettes. Could you tell us a little bit about the research process? How you how you came up with your question and where did you go looking for all of this data or the, all the all this uh, you know archives and empirics and the like? Um, you know, did you find things that other people hadn't found, or do you simply interpret them differently? I worry things went in the other direction. I found a lot of sources and I had to figure out what questions they might possibly speak to. Um, and this started in the U.S. archives, I mean, just because I was in D.C. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a fascinating amount of stuff about uh, the U.S.-Turkish relations in College Park, Maryland, which, mm-hmm. you know, has been mined enough that I think people have figured out the big things. Uh, but there was certainly a lot more information to glean Uh, going through it more carefully and going through it with an eye towards some of the uh, debates about the role of culture and ideology in U.S. foreign policy that diplomatic historians have gotten more interested in in the last uh, decade or two. Uh, Very much enjoyed that. You know, found one or two things in the U.S. archives that I think really were uh, new. But, you know, most strikingly, what I didn't find has been this big debate about whether or not it was U.S. pressure that forced Turkey to have free democratic elections in 1950. Uh, and this is often taken as an article of faith. And yet, you know, again, it's sort of hard to prove evidence of absence, but having spent a lot of time going through diplomatic correspondence between U.S. and Turkish officials during this period, you know, the U.S. didn't put any pressure on Turkey. There's no, you know, you can't really, I didn't find any documents of U.S. officials saying, hey, you know, if you want to join NATO, you really have to be more democratic. What you find tends to be the opposite. Um, you know, people kind of reassuring the Turkish government that implicitly, you know, you keep doing your thing, you keep rigging elections, and we'll keep working together. Right. Um, so, you know, there was some interesting stuff like that that came up in the U.S. archives. Uh, the more fun, probably, part of this came from, you know, Turkish published uh, primary sources. There's not, you know, there are the there are Turkish archives from the 40s and 50s. They're uh, very well digitized in part because there's just not not that much available. Um, and you can find some fun letters that random people wrote to the prime minister, but you're not going to find enough to really get a picture of Turkish foreign or domestic policy. Uh, so as a result, I mean, I spent a lot of time reading newspapers, um, reading, I mean, just an absurd number of uh, fantastic, bizarre, quirky magazines that were published in the 1940s and 50s. Where did you find all those? So, and that's what's nice, you know, in, um, there are a lot of great, very accessible public um, libraries in Turkey, you can go into request, you know, oftentimes the first edition of this stuff. I mean, they'll just bring out a stack of newspapers from the 1940s and let you flip through it. Uh, those were very easy to access and made for um, made for fun research. You know, and then also there are just so many used bookstores uh, scattered throughout Turkey, um, you know, in different, different parts of Istanbul where you can you know, find material from this period on sale uh, relatively cheaply. Um, you know, they're used booksellers that are very eager to talk to you about this stuff. Uh, and what was, you know, this is kind of my, in a way, sort of makeshift justification for some of my source selection. It did seem like, you know, if you go into a used bookstore, certain magazines that appear all over the place and that you can buy at the cheapest prices, you know, you have to assume apps in a better metric. Those are the ones that were best selling. Those are the ones that were most widely read and most widely 
uh, and most influential. You know, and so I bought up a lot of used books, uh, read them, you know, and then in the course of it, you see different authors refer to different other authors, different random publications from the period are picking fights with, you know, other random publications from the period. Uh, and, you know, and then one by one, you can kind of construct, you know, sort of debates between Islamist magazines. You can look at who they were talking about and who they were referencing uh, and put together, put together some of these debates. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, it was really kind of came out of the process itself then. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I wish I could pretend that there was some kind of, <laughs> yeah, that I had the questions in advance, but no, it was very much the material and just <laughs> read stuff till I felt like I had enough interesting things to say to make a book and then tried to make them into a book. So taking this book as a whole, then, uh, what would you say is the biggest misunderstanding about this era of Turkish politics that uh, you feel we can now see a bit more clearly? And what do you hope people do with that understanding? Well, one of my real frustrations with the book or, you know, things that I was stuck with at the conclusion of this book is, you know, it's very much this question of where do we go from here? Um you know, again, so much of what was written, you know, so much of the scholarship that came out, I think really did try to write a history, not just of modern Turkey, but of, you know, the 20th century in which, you know, again, modernization, uh, secularism, nationalism were all fundamentally linked to, you know, to the authoritarian abuses, the democratic failures that we've seen you know, in the Middle East and much of the rest of the world over the last century, um, you know, without in any way defending or rehabilitating these ideas, uh, that was a very satisfying narrative. It, you know, we could look back at in Turkish history and say, all right, well, these were the problems. These were the things that we have to escape from. Uh, and what I think, you know, historians, all of us are still struggling with uh, now as we've seen, you know, what's happened in Turkey recently is that, you know, whereas breaking the strictures of Kamalism was supposed to be liberatory, um, and many academics really believed in this project, you know, the AKP has managed to do that, uh, and then twist them to then come up with something that is equally oppressive, equally uh, hegemonic. And it doesn't, you know, and it really does call into question what I think we thought was a very you know, admirable intellectual project we were engaged in over the last 20 years. You know, we really thought that promoting these ideas, that using our scholarship to fight a political battle against uh, bad scholarship and bad ideas was going to have a liberatory political impact. Um, you know, and I think some of all of us as scholars believe in this, all that we're, the work we're doing, the ideas we're promoting are going to have positive political impacts, um, you know, and seeing how badly that backfired, mm-hmm. seeing, you know, I think in my personal case, um, you know, watching historians who are quite honestly better historians than I'm ever going to be, you know, do better work than I'm ever going to do and still come to some very problematic political conclusions. I really, you know, really puts, uh, you know, me at least at a, at a loss in terms of where we do go from here and what the takeaway is. Um, and, it, you know, I think the conclusion has to be that, you know, I think we should be more sympathetic to uh, an earlier generation of scholars who tried to understand the world the best they did, um, often understood it in very nuanced ways, 
And then when it came to draw political conclusions from their nuanced work, had them lead in uh, strange and unexpected and dangerous directions. You know, one, one way that I might, you know, take away from your book on, on that question is that, I mean, I think you do show that uh, the ideas matter, that uh, the ideas, the theories, the arguments, uh, they do matter. They just don't matter in the way we expect them to. Yeah, I mean, that's the best way to, that's the best way to put it. And I guess that's why, you know, to the extent that deep down, I still do think these ideas matter. I, my big takeaway would be, you know, focus on getting the ideas as right as you can from a historical intellectual perspective, instead of worrying about what the political consequences of those ideas are going to be. And then once you get the, you know, the ideas and the history as right as you can, you know, then kind of then separately fight the battles about politics and try to, you know, engage as, you know, I know you do. And I think a lot of us, especially living in Washington, try to do you know, then try to engage with the political debates on their own terms, you know, recognizing that those are always going to be a little separate from the intellectual debates. Right. Well, great. We've been speaking to uh, Nicholas Danforth uh, about his new book, The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, just out with Cambridge. And Nick, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Great to be on here. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Vincent Keating of the University of Southern Denmark and Lucy Abbott of the University of Edinburgh. We're going to talk about their new article, Entrusted Norms, Security, Trust, and Betrayal in the Gulf Cooperation Council Crisis, uh, just published in the European Journal of International Relations. Uh, Lucy, Vincent, thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's good to be here. So tell us about this article and what's the major contribution which you guys set out to make? Well, I think I'll, I think I'll start out. So I think one of the one of the great things about this article is that it, it really starts with both a theoretical contribution and an empirical contribution. Um, the theoretical contribution is to take two literatures that previously didn't speak to each other, namely the literature on trust and the literature on social constructivism and norms and uh, and kind of bring them together to to create a concept which we believe does is both interesting theoretically, but also does interesting empirical work. Um, the empirical work that it does, and this is kind of the, the, the puzzle on the empirical side, has to do with the Gulf Cooperation Council and particularly the problems that uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar have been having uh, in, the, in the last number of years. And the question over why has this gotten so bad and why has it seemed so difficult to resolve? Okay, so the concept that we have very briefly is the concept of entrusted norms, uh, and we can talk a little bit further on exactly what that means. Um, but basically, what the argument says is that we believe that, but through understanding the conflict, through uh, entrusted norms that existed among the states uh, that were then perceived to be broken. Uh, we can tell a pretty good story about the relationship and why it's uh, why it fell apart and why it's been so difficult to, of course, repair uh, after uh, the norm was broken. Why don't we start by talking about the puzzle a little bit? And, uh, you know, why was this rift between Qatar and the rest of the GCC uh, so puzzling? Uh, what inspired you to think that this required um, this novel theoretical approach? Um, so the main reason was actually the character of the conflict in terms of the history of relations between members in the GCC. Um, this particular one seemed to be, uh, as Vincent mentioned before, 
characterized by how severe the breakdown in relations uh, came to be. So in previous uh, disruptions, we could say, in normal GCC business, there always seems to have been a way in which to find a path forward, um, despite how serious uh, things may have been and despite historical circumstances. Um, but with this particular one, it was, it was also the sort of more personal character of some of the interactions that happened, particularly in the outbreak of the, of the breakdown, um, that what was different about this one was actually the appeal to the public domain as well um, as a part of the way in which um, these two states try to talk to each other uh, through the public domain uh, in a new way. I, you know, I was thinking at the time, and I thought that this was a particularly interesting case that uh, warranted sort of further investigation. It really was quite extreme uh, in terms of the blockade and the boycott and yeah. the public interactions around that. Yeah, exactly. And we see a whole new um, sort of strategy of using social media in particular, um, and also sort of traditional diplomatic channels, such as uh, appearances at diplomatic organizations abroad by both um, States, I'm thinking about Chatham House or other places in DC, um, where it was almost as if there were appeals to the public being made um, beyond those usual channels that we would have associated with a conflict like this, that there would be more back-channeling. Um, it definitely felt that there was a, the public domain was playing a much bigger role, and consequently there was an impact in terms of uh, the efficacy of getting the message out, right? So using media was a way in which to get a very uh, quick take on um, how certain policies are going to play in a way that historically things haven't moved that quickly uh, in the international domain before. So let's talk about this, uh, the theoretical uh, approach that you're bringing then, this concept of entrusted norms. What does that mean and how does it apply uh, to this particular case? Well, I mean, uh, entrusted norms is, is a concept we take uh, from the trust literature uh, and particularly a section of the trust literature uh, that is about social trust. Um, like all types of sociological concepts, uh, you know, trust is uh, is disputed as to exactly what it is. Um, we have a specific way of coming about it, uh, you know, that really sort of emphasizes the, the, the degree to which social bonding identification can create trust between groups, trust between states, trust between even individuals, um, and how there are certain norms or standards that can be wrapped up around how it is that these states or groups are supposed to interact with each other. Now, in the social constructivist literature, we already have the idea that norms can be embedded. Um, so this, this idea that you have that, you know, you can have a norm and, uh, and from your point of view as the state, uh, it's taken for granted, right? So it's, it's an idea that this is simply a way that, it, that things are supposed to go. So Denmark, you know, believes that human rights are important, right? That's not even up for political debate, right? It's a, it would, might be a good example of, a, of an embedded norm. But what that does is that it's really sort of in the literature implicitly reflected on the on, on the on the state that's that's you know either agrees or disagrees with the norm, right? And what we were interested in is okay, well, what about the relations to the other norm following states, right? Is it possible that you can have a norm that isn't just that you internalize, you know, that it is obviously right to you, but that you believe that others have internalized and others should follow. And that becomes part of the social environment that everybody should follow this one norm, right? And so we decided that this is this could be seen as a, as a sort of a higher level in this way of, of, of embeddedness of the norm 
And of course, this is where we come up with the idea of entrusted norms. Um, so what so what happened that led to this this perception that Qatar had broken these entrusted norms or what was the, how did they violate um, what these expectations? Um, so the way in which, particularly from the point of view of the paper that we've articulated this, is that the entrusted norm at work sort of necessitates a particular type of behaviour um, or a particular type of conduct when things happen. Um, and we argue in the paper that um, following uh, the Arab Spring, there is an expectation um, of coalescing or GCC members coalescing around cooperation norms um, in order to maintain stability. And that there, would, there was an expectation that this would be maintained um, at all costs. And then we see um, Qatar taking a role in um, becoming sort of more committed to its uh, cooperation with uh, figures in political Islam um, that we see that Saudi Arabia then starts to take issue with. Um, and then despite sort of public uh, statements that Saudi Arabia and the GCC at large uh, would make about expecting Qatar to, in this language we used at the time, to sort of come back into the fold, um, to sort of underpin those GCC expectations for norms of cooperation, um, Qatar chooses to maintain its line um, in pursuing that independent foreign policy. Um, again, as we saw as the conflict sort of developed, um, Qatar didn't actually, and particularly as it has been res resolved technically, um, Qatar at no point actually changed uh, its course of action, um, which is an interesting finding in the resolution of the conflict. Um, and so again, it gives us further evidence of the, um, of the argument that we're trying to make, that there is an entrustedness um, to a norm that's not necessarily formally explicated uh, as part of the alliance and how the alliance was agreed to begin with. So why do you think that uh, like a straightforward realist reading of this, it's just straight power and competition is insufficient? for explaining these outcomes? Well, at the end of the day, it's, it's very difficult to understand why Saudi Arabia would completely take apart, you know, uh, you know, go through so much trouble, uh, you know, to punish Qatar, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in this circumstance, uh, particularly in terms of the, the means in which it, do, it, it did it, like, you know, the dramatic means through which these things were announced, which were completely unprecedented in the way that diplomacy was previously uh, handled. Um, everything up to, uh, you know, issues of we're going to build a, the proposal to build a moat, uh, you know, to make uh, Qatar an island doesn't seem to be the strategic, uh, you know, way that you would go forward um, if you were thinking in this sort of rationalist, realist calculus, right? Um, you know, there's, there, there are other examples in the paper, of course, you know, that, that, that we get through, but, the, but it, you know, our argument is that there's more going on than just a rational dispute, right? I mean, our, our argument, in fact, is that you know when you when you betray a, uh, a a entrusted norm, the reaction of betrayal on the part of the of, of the person or state that was betrayed means that in fact you can't get back to the behavioral status quo, um, you know uh, because uh, you know you've basically destroyed the relationship in some way, right? There was an expectation, an entrusted expectation that was made. And what happens is that in betraying that expectation, right, you all of a sudden need to uh, overly compensate, uh, you know, you know, that state that was betrayed um, and that state betrayed that was betrayed is going to act out in many ways that are going to be highly emotional and not necessarily purely strategic. 
And we think we have at least a reasonable argument to say that, you know, this seems to be more what's going on. And it's a little bit difficult to explain the, the specific behaviors of, of Saudi Arabia if you were just to use a rationalist framework. No, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the paper is the, um, the, the, the emphasis you place on trust. And because we all know that, you know, once you've lost someone's trust, it's extraordinarily difficult to get it back. So what does that imply for the GCC, for kind of how you would think about how politics are likely to look, the international relations of the Gulf, in this condition where those entrusted norms which shaped the GCC can't really be rebuilt? Um, so I think that in terms of yeah future implications for the GCC, um, I think we're going to see a lot more, you know, as we said before, this relationship has been sort of damaged, not necessarily beyond repair completely, uh, which is what I think the resolution or the, the Al-Ula agreement shows us is that it's not completely uh, destroyed in that respect. Um, what I think it does do, however, is sort of make us think a little bit more about that our assumption that perhaps the GCC is based on a, a consensus agreement about GCC priorities perhaps is not quite as solid as it may have been in the past. And it may, particularly from the point of view of Qatar, we see this um, a little bit in sort of domestic Qatari media as well, when um, particularly at the resolution end uh, of the conflict, there was a lot of um, sort of opinion pieces in Al Jazeera sort of reflecting on how difficult it might be going forward um, that a certain amount of um, time was required in order to get things back to where they may have been. Um, so I suspect that what we might see is um, Qatar in particular using this as an opportunity um, to further their own um, independent foreign policy goals in the way that they have been. Again, as I pointed out before, that they haven't actually um, moved backwards in any way in terms of the resolution. So I think that this will be more um, to consolidate their position. Um, and again, sort of outside of the GCC, we've seen Qatar's role in uh, facilitating uh, communication with the Taliban and actors of the Taliban um, in the resolution of, uh, I say resolution, but in, at the end of the Afghanistan and the withdrawal of troops, um, that we're seeing them move out onto a more global we could say, um, position, um, which is something that perhaps the GCC or the resolution of the GCC crisis has enabled uh, them to do. On the Saudi side, I would also have said that the Saudis probably have a much clearer idea of the extent of resolve on this part and that actually within the GCC um, we, may, um, we may see a bit more um, discussions perhaps taking longer than they would have in the past. So one last question is, do you think that um, this uh, condition of entrusted norms is something which is kind of unique to the Gulf, given their you know similarity of the countries and the personal relationships among the leaders? Or do you see it as a concept that travels more broadly back out into the international relations literature? I mean, I think that it's uh, it's broadly applicable. Uh, you know, I mean, one only needs to look at what happened uh, last week uh, with the relationship between France and the United States. Uh, you know, to to think about what uh, certain, you know, what certain means of conducting yourself, right? Because according to the reports, or at least you know the what I've read, you know, it it wasn't. I mean, of course, the French were upset that they lost the contract. Right. But what they seemed even more upset by by what is the way in which they were handled by the United States 
right? And it seemed to really sort of affect them in a way that, that they thought there was a way that we were supposed to do this as allies, right? That was fundamentally violated by the United States. And you get, as a result, an, an immensely emotional reaction by France, right? You know, uh, publicly. And I think at the end of the day, right, it's you see a lot of analyses about, oh, should France be strategically you know, interested in this? Did they overreact? But it's all from a very rationalist point of view. And I think if we start thinking about the fact that there are certain ways of, of doing business that states trust each other to basically, you know, because of just general international politics or because they're allies or because there's particular cultural traits that they share, uh, you know, those can become immensely political. And, uh, and just like with the example of, of Qatar and, the United, and, and uh, Saudi Arabia or the United States and France, I mean, the big problem is that you want to get back to the political status quo before the betrayal or the so-called betrayal, perceived betrayal happened, right? Um, but it can be really, really difficult because you can't just go back to the way things were, right? And then there's a, a political process that you would have to work through to, to, to see, you know, how is it that you can repair this relationship in an environment where trust is going to be lower um, because you just betrayed them in a certain way. Okay, this is really interesting. I thank you, Vincent and Lucy, for joining us. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topics segment, we're joined by Christian Ulrichsen of the Baker Institute, Rice University. Uh, Christian, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So there's been a lot going on uh, in the Gulf over the last year or so, and um, I wanted to just check in with you and get your read about uh, where do things stand in the international relations of the Gulf these days. And I thought we could start with um, the uh, looking back at the you know the reconciliation between Qatar and the boycotting states, and um, you know what what does that actually look like now within the GCC, and uh, you know how would you assess the reality of this reconciliation? Well, we're now nine months into the process. The reconciliation was agreed at the GCC summit in Al-Ula in Saudi Arabia in January. And I think what we can see now after nine months is that the process is genuine in many ways. It is much more nuanced than the process that ended the previous vow in 2014, in the sense that we haven't just had an agreement that was signed at a summit, that was then sort of left on the shelf. We've had working parties bilaterally continuing to meet to discuss specific issues of Qatar-Saudi, Qatar-Egyptian, Qatar-UAE relations. And those working parties have met on multiple occasions. So we're seeing a differentiation of the issues that were variously bundled up into the blockade with they're being distinguished into issues, country-specific uh, processes which I think has made for a more uh, successful process of dealing with those issues in turn. We just saw, for example, last week that BN has now been allowed access back into Saudi Arabia. That was one of the major issues that had been outstanding. So we're seeing things continuing to be resolved. Where I think we haven't seen as much progress is between Qatar and Bahrain. And that partly might be because those issues are more historical in nature. Those issues are maybe deeper rooted in nature relating to um, Saudi or UAE influence in Bahrain as well. Uh, the fact that for various reasons, both Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed are more anxious to present themselves as regional peacemakers, or at least diplomacy figures in the current period, perhaps than the Bahrainis are. So we are seeing also a different speed of, of reconciliation. 
Qatar-Saudi relations have improved farthest and fastest. Um, Qatar-Egyptian relations have also improved pretty dramatically. Qatar-UAE have also to some extent improved, and that was maybe a more of a surprise given that the animosity that generated the blockade was widely thought to have come from Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. But in the last month alone, we've seen Sheikh Tahnoun from the UAE visiting uh, Doha, visiting the Emir of Qatar. And then we just saw recently the foreign minister of Qatar actually visiting Mohammed bin Zayed. So we are seeing the resumption of higher, highest level delegations too, which I think is a sign of, a sign of progress. And a sign at least of re restoring some of the, the yes. trust and the sort of diplomatic meetings at the top levels. Given the, the depth of the animosity and the nature of the issues that were raised during the blockade, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of mind boggling to remember the kind of discourse that was used against Qatar as a terrorist state and the source of all evil in the region. Um, and then see Mohammed bin Salman and Amir Tamim uh, hanging out at a spa together. Yes, that image of the three of Mohammed Salman, Amir Tamim and Sheikh Taknoun all as if they'd run into each other in the gym was quite quite remarkable. And I think very deliberately put out by the mm -hmm. authorities to underline the fact that we are now into a new phase. Uh, the fact that, I mean, as you see, the discourse has shifted dramatically. I think the Saudis and the UAE were quite careful to ensure that even during the worst of the blockade, none of the actual statements came from senior ruling family members. It was always surrogates further down who were used to send messages. Uh, I think there was even then a recognition that the ruling families will be there long after the blockade has ended, and they do have to get along at some point in the future. But yes, memories are very long. They won't forget a lot of the rhetoric in a hurry. I just think that at the moment, at least, there's more pragmatism at the senior levels, mm -hmm. that this is a different phase, that we have moved from one phase to another, and that at least in this phase, we all have to get along. Now, given the nature of the resolution, um, and the fact that Qatar basically didn't really concede on any of the core demands. When you look back, then what does that tell us about how serious, uh, you know, how much of a driver those demands really were versus something else driving the animosity at that time period? Well, if you remember in June 2017, the so-called Quartet of States blockading Qatar released this maximalist list of 13 demands which would have basically violated Qatar's sovereignty for a period of 12 years, would have exerted complete control over Qatar's foreign policy outlook, security policy, and, and many internal issues as well. And those demands were ridiculed at the time as effectively being a, a sort of ultimatum for surrender. And in January 2021, we still don't know what was in the agreement signed in January, but I think it's safe to say that none of those 13 demands were incorporated which just goes to show, I think, that the launch of the blockade was partly triggered by the fact that the Saudis and UAE and Abu Dhabi especially, I think, felt that they had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with Donald Trump in the White House with a US administration distracted and perhaps less committed to long-standing US interests in the Gulf and that they could turn that to their advantage. And of course, once that failed to take effect, once by September 2017, Trump had committed to a, some sort of resolution, we were stuck. But then again, I think it's also no coincidence that the blockade was finally resolved during the transition from, from Trump to Biden. We basically then had, I think, the final recognition among the blockading states that with Biden coming in, there was no hope that they could achieve any of their objectives from 2017. 
let's hold that thought and come back to it in in a minute. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, for those who are listening, um, if you're interested in Kristen's views on the uh, Qatar crisis, he literally wrote the book on the topic. Uh, it's a great book, came out with Hearst uh, last year, and uh, you should check that out. But let's leave the Qatar crisis behind for a moment, because the other big thing which seems to be happening in the Gulf right now are these tentative efforts at, uh, at diplomacy and perhaps even rapprochement between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And so what do you make of that? Well, this predates uh, the transition in the US. It began in 2019, and I think it's a reaction to the sense of shock and vulnerability in Saudi Arabia after the September 2019 attacks on Saudi oil facilities. And then the fact that the Trump administration, again, coming back to Trump, failed to do anything in response. In fact, Donald Trump, two days later, actually said this was an attack on Saudi. It wasn't an attack on US interests. And that triggered a, an overnight shift in Saudi rhetoric, at least, and also in the UAE as well. Until that point, we had seen Mohammed bin Salman and UAE officials being extremely hawkish and effectively, I think, assuming that whatever they did vis-a-vis -vis Iran, they would have automatic US backing. And Abqaiq attacks in 2019 showed that wasn't the case and that they would have to at least coexist or find ways of coexisting with Iran without necessarily having a uh, sort of automatic US support. So within weeks of those 2019 attacks, we did see at the beginning of dialogue through intermediaries in Iraq between Saudi and Iranian officials. And by the time of Qasem Soleimani's killing in January 2020, when US-Iran tensions spiked, we actually had the Saudi defense, Deputy Defense Minister Khalid bin Salman, MBS's brother, actually flying to Washington to urge de-escalation, a very different uh, message from the one the Saudis were sending in 2017, 2018. So over the last two years, we've moved from indirect dialogue through intermediaries to direct talks. And the talks in last month in September were, I think, the fourth round. Again, they began in the spring before the uh, Iranian presidential elections. The fact that they've continued into the government of uh, President Raisi, I think, is a sign that they're at least continuing to discuss issues like Yemen or uh, regional security. They seem to be making some progress in the sense that the Saudi foreign minister has now indicated that they may be looking at some sort of reopening of diplomatic missions, which Saudi closed in 2016. And Iran may be looking for some way to ease its isolation. And we also may be thinking that the Saudis and Iran both feel that the Trump, uh, the Biden administration isn't going to re-enter the JCPOA and that they both may be making their own plans for, for sort of getting along over the next few years, regardless of what may happen in the wider international world. How far do you think this could go, given the depth of the mutual fears and suspicions and the legacies of hostility? Um, is this just lowering the temperature, or is there a possibility for something more fundamental uh, to change in the nature of the regional order? Well, I think it's lowering the temperature partly because the Saudis really realize they have to lower it. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman also needs to focus on Vision 2030 on trying to kickstart the Saudi economy especially post-pandemic. And the Iranians, I think, are realizing that uh, international sanctions will continue. The JCPOA is probably continuing to be dead on arrival. And so both countries, I think, are realizing you need to at least lower the temperature while you can focus on domestic issues, which in all countries are now a priority after the pandemic, or at least in the post-pandemic economic recovery. So I think right now is about lowering the issues so that they can focus on domestic issues. 
whether or not it can lead into anything more substantial, like an end to the Yemen war in some ways, or from a Saudi perspective, Iran's reduction of support for regional uh, groups it, it kind of provides assistance to, that would be the key going forward. And we'll have to see whether Saudi and Iranian priorities are the same. The Saudis will want Yemen to be top of the agenda. The Iranians may want something quite different. And so whether we can see that matched, and also in Yemen, whether the Iranians have any influence over the Houthis, the Saudis seem convinced that they do, but the Houthis are also a, a very much a domestic actor with their own set of interests. And will they align with any sort of grand bargain that the Saudis and Iranians can, can try and agree between themselves? We just don't know. Where does the UAE fit into all of this? Because on the one hand, you know, they have been working hand in hand with the Saudis for, uh, you know, post-Arab spring period, but we have seen some divisions uh, appearing between them in foreign policy. And with the Abraham Accords and the normalization with Israel um, and with the United States coming closer to saying that the, the nuclear deal probably isn't coming back, as you said, you know, what are the prospects that you might see some kind of uh, Israeli Emirati military action against Iran? And, and how would that fit into this kind of move towards rapprochement that the Saudis are pushing? Well, I think one of the reasons for the Abraham Accords was exactly to prepare for a post-American Gulf that's at least in perception that is coming, the perceptions of officials in Abu Dhabi, even perhaps in Israel too, whereby a strategic component of that post-American Gulf would be that closer relationship between Israel and Abu Dhabi, to a much lesser extent, to Bahrain. So I don't necessarily think we'll see action, military action against Iran, but we may see very much a push for continuing to contain Iran, which may then uh, begin to uh, grate with any Saudi-Iranian dialogue. I think we're good once again seeing a, a divergence in, in priorities. The Saudis are taking action for, for Saudi interests, not necessarily for Saudi and Emirati interests, just as the UAE concluded the Abraham Accords for UAE interests, not for UAE and Saudi interests. And we have also seen signs of economic rivalry between Saudi Arabia and the UAE over the last couple of months as well. Uh, trade issues um, come to the surface, uh, dispute over oil quotas as well. So we are seeing, I think, a geoeconomic rivalry going forward, which will at least change some of the alignments that we've seen over the last 10 years since the Arab Spring, which is much more, I guess, geopolitical and security in focus. And especially post-pandemic, we may see economic rivalries come to the surface much more. So, so in the midst of all of this, um, I mean, would you say that the GCC is becoming functional again, or is it basically been too fatally wounded by the events of the last five years? The GCC still seems to have been quite largely absent, actually, over, over recent months. We've still seen rivalries, say, between Abu Dhabi and Riyadh handled bilaterally between those two governments, rather than including the GCC secretariat in any meaningful way. So I think it's still been very badly damaged by the fact that it was effectively unable to prevent three of its members from taking action against the fourth. And at every stage, the GCC was absent, apart from the final ceremony, which even then, I think, was triggered by Saudi interest to try and present Mohammed Salman as a peacemaker in the incoming Biden administration's eyes. It wasn't a GCC-led resolution. Well, thanks, uh, uh, Christian. Uh, we've been speaking with Christian Ulrichsen of Rice University's Baker Institute. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. No, thank you.